with me in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John. I was kidding, I'm not going to drink your water. John is the, uh, the fourth book in the New Testament. He is the fourth person to write an account of Jesus' life. And I don't know that, uh, that our, our purpose in studying John is, uh, is well captured in that song, that new song we sang today, Come Lord Jesus, that, that we would really meet Jesus face to face and that we, would, that we would be changed. So John chapter 7, we're going to start reading at verse 32. If you're using uh, one of our pew Bibles, one of the red pew Bibles, it should be on page 893. Just as a reminder, we're really kind of picking up in the middle of the action. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at this really important festival, the Feast of Booths, and he is creating quite a stir. Um, It seems like in John 6, now in John 7, and you're going to see this continuing, that the more Jesus talks, uh, the more problems he creates, and that is quite intentional. Um, Jesus is creating division with every word, so it seems. Uh, but that's not all that he is creating. So let's, uh, let's give ear to God's word, starting in verse 32. We end verse 31. Uh, verse 31 ends by saying that many people believe in Jesus. Saying, when the Christ appears, he will, do more si- will he do more than this signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers Of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, would you bless, would you lavish your grace and favor on the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your holy word. Lord, that you would strike, a strike to our hearts. May we not be bitter and hard like the Pharisees, aloof and misunderstanding like some in the crowd, but, oh Lord, that we would be like Peter uh, in chapter 6 who said, you have the words of eternal life. I pray, Lord God, that we would hear words of life uh, in this sermon today because that is what is in this text today. So, Lord, would you, uh, would you come and would you move by the power of your Spirit through your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's pretty clear that Jesus is beyond all human control. He's been teaching in the temple, and it's like, it's like a broken record almost. John keeps saying that they want to arrest him, that they want to kill him, and yet no one is able to lay a hand on him. And it comes to this crucial point where many are beginning to believe. Things are starting to look up again for Jesus. People are hearing his words, and they're believing. They're and we don't know whether their belief was all the way belief, whether it was true belief. But, they, but, but there are at least people in the crowd who are saying, surely this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. And so the religious leaders can't stand this. They hear the crowd muttering these things and they send officers to arrest him. And we've seen and we'll see at the end how that goes. So many are believing, and it moves the rulers to arrest Jesus. They say, we have to stop this man before he influences too many people. And here's how Jesus replies to them. And his reply does two things. First, it asserts his authority even over them. Now, Jesus was a a carpenter, a tradesman from Nazareth. It's where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, if you're familiar with the Christian story. Um, But... Certainly, he wouldn't be expected to wield too much authority over the powers that be in Jerusalem. And so when they send officers to arrest him, right, they're done talking. It's time to put this man in irons. When they send officers to arrest him, then surely that would just happen. But Jesus asserts his authority over them by saying this, I'll be with you a little longer, almost, almost maybe condescending. Don't worry, I'll be here just a little while longer. I won't trouble you for too much longer, but I am going to be here. I will be here a little while longer, meaning you can't, you're not taking me now. I will be here a little while longer, and then when I go, I'm going to him who sent me, right? Jesus has been referring to the one who sent him over and over again, and we saw that primarily last week, that Jesus talks about that his authority comes from him who sent him, his father. And so Jesus is again affirming to them, I'm going to be here. 
And when I decide to go, when I go, it won't be at your behest. It won't be because you want me to leave. It will be because I go back to the one who sent me, because I go back to the Father. So my present is outside of your control. You can't take me. And my future is outside of your control. You can't stop me. You can't make me leave before I'm ready. And when I leave, you won't be able to get to me. And in that, Jesus is not only asserting his authority, but he's also giving them a warning. There's a veiled warning in there, right? When he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He's saying, look, now's your chance. There's going to come a day when you're going to seek me, but it's going to be too late. When the day for really arresting me, the day for really apprehending me, truly believing in me, that day will have passed and it will be too late for you. Where I am, you cannot come. And so Jesus issues his authority, he asserts his authority, and he issues a warning. But they're blind. They're confused. They, you see the problem, and if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you've, we've seen this. People keep taking Jesus literally. They don't understand what he's saying. They look at him, verse 35, almost, almost with arrogance. Where does he intend to go that we won't be able to find him? It's like they're the CIA or something. Now, where does he plan to go? He's not going to go to the Greeks, is he, and teach the Greeks? God forbid that a Jewish rabbi should take good news to someone other than Jewish people. What does he mean, you will seek me and you will not find me? Their, their unbelief has blinded them to what Jesus is saying. And so they are, they are hardened. They are continually confused. And then we get to the last day of the feast. And just so, uh, just so you have a sense of what's going on, let's talk about the, the Feast of Booths, okay? We mentioned, I said some of this last week, but this was one of three major festivals in Jewish life. This was the longest festival, and by some was regarded as uh, maybe not the most important, but certainly the most popular. It was a week long, and what the people did was they, if if you didn't live in Jerusalem, if you were coming from outside Jerusalem, you built a tent, right? You built a booth out of branches and leaves, and that's where you live for the week. If you lived in Jerusalem, you actually built that structure on your roof, and you lived there, and this 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 was a reminder of Jesus's, excuse me, this was a reminder of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, right? It was meant to be a reminder to them of how God had provided for them while they had wandered in the wilderness. When they lived in tents, God lived in a tent with them, and so they celebrated this feast. And every day of the feast, not only did you have your prescribed animal sacrifices going on at the temple, but there was a water ritual. And what would happen is the the high priest would take a pitcher and he would go down to the pool of Siloam below the temple and he would fill it up. And all of the people that could be gathered there would gather and then they would all march up the steps together to the temple. And when they got to the temple, the high priest would take the water and he would march around the altar. And on this day, on the last day, he marched around the altar six times and then would go up to the altar and pour the water out. And so there's a few things that this symbolizes, right? And as he was doing this, he would read from Isaiah 12:3, which said, 
uh, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So with all that, here's what's, here's what's going on. First of all, it's a reminder or it's a symbol of God's present faithfulness. Uh, that what's happening is this, is a, this is a harvest feast. They're bringing in the harvest at the end of the year. And so this whole ritual is a present reminder of God's faithfulness in providing rain. Right? The pouring out of water symbolizes what God does when he pours rain on the crops, providing a fruitful harvest. More than that, it was a reminder of their past. That when they were walking in the wilderness, in Exodus 17, they come to a place with no water. And they're thirsty. And they begin grumbling and complaining. This actually happens twice. In Exodus 17 and later on in Numbers. So they're grumbling and complaining. And what God does is he tells Moses, he says, I want you to walk over to the rock, over to those rocks over there, and I want you to strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water is going to gush out. And that's exactly what happens. As they complain against Moses, Moses complains to the Lord, and Moses goes and he strikes the rock, and water pours out of the rock. And so this festival was a reminder that God would not let his people die of thirst in the wilderness. That's what's going on as they watch the priest carrying the water up the temple steps. But it was also a hope for the future. That from that point forward, this idea of water, then later on in the prophets, gets tied to the Spirit. We read Ezekiel 36. And it, and it looked forward to the one day, the great day, when, as Isaiah says in chapter 12, that God's people would draw with joy from the wells of salvation. And so there's a present thankfulness, there's a past thankfulness, and there's a future expectation. All of that is in these people's minds as they're watching the priest carry this pitcher of water up to the altar and pour it out. And it's in the middle of this, maybe even just after the priest has finished marching around the altar for the sixth time and he pours it out, that Jesus stands up and he cries out, Come to me, everyone who thirsts. So they're thinking about God's provision. They're thinking about, okay, God provides water. God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who will bring salvation. And then Jesus says, I'm here. I am the one who is here to quench your thirst. Not simply your physical thirst. I'm not here for that. I'm here to quench your spiritual thirst. That day you're longing for that Isaiah saw, it's here. The wells of salvation, that's me. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation because that's me. And so what does Jesus call us to do? He calls us to drink. In this passage, drinking drinking Jesus is parallel to believing in Jesus. Just look at verse 37. The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, so believing in Jesus is parallel to drinking from Jesus. And here's why that's so important. And you see Jesus do this several different ways. In just the last passage, in, cha- or not, in the last chapter, right, believing in Jesus was the same as eating his flesh and drinking his blood. 
And so Jesus keeps providing these different metaphors for trusting in him. Here's what this tells us, right? Jesus is saying, know your need, know that I can satisfy it, and trust me. Know your need, know that I can satisfy it, and trust me. And here's what this means about believing. Believing is not less than knowing, but it is certainly so much more. Believing is not less than knowing, but it is so much more. What do I mean by that? First, I mean this, that you, you have to have knowledge of what you're drinking before you can drink it. I mean, I don't guess you have to, but it's a good idea to, right? That if, I'm, that if I had a cup up here, hey, thanks, Jennifer. It even says grower on it. It's a harvest cup. If I, if I have a cup up here and you're thirsty and it's a cup full of raw sewage, but I say, here's a cup of cool, refreshing water. Come and drink. You better know what's in the cup before you take a sip. Because not only will you not be satisfied, not only will your thirst not be quenched, but it could very well kill you from the inside out. So knowledge is necessary in believing. But knowledge is not enough. Believing is more than knowledge. Because I could have a cup of cool water up here, and you could be thirsty. And if you are thirsty, it is not enough for you to come up here and take a look in the cup and say, it's clear, no floaters, looks refreshing, it's water. Your thirst is not quenched by knowing this is water. You must drink it. You must take it into you. And in the same way, it's not enough to know what Jesus says about himself. It's not enough to know who he is. You actually have to drink him. You actually have to trust him. You must trust what Jesus says about who he is and what he's done in order to be saved. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone. Anyone. Jesus is saying this to the whole crowd. To the Pharisees who hate him. To most of the people who don't understand him. He's saying, anyone. This is your moment. If you are thirsty, come and drink. And so you get the picture. Look at the lifelong promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So get the picture. You're thirsty. You don't have water. Um, you're, You're like a parched, dry desert. And then you come to the water. You come to the rock, split open. The spring of living water, fresh water, good, clean water gushing out from the rock. And you drink. And you're satisfied. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on forever. Because as soon as you drink the water, 
a spring is created in you. And now rivers, not just a trickle, rivers of fresh, clean, living water flow out of you. That's the picture. What does Jesus mean? What's he talking about? Well, first, once you believe in Jesus, you're quenched forever. It's done. Your thirst is quenched forever. You, have, you, have, you are in the fountain. But not only that, once you are quenched and satisfied forever, now waters flow out of you. Now, it's not yours. It's not your water. Right? You are not the source of life-giving strength and satisfaction. That's still Jesus, but now his water pours forth out of you. Right? Imagine how foolish it would be. Imagine, uh, imagine we're back like in prehistoric Chilton County before it was called Chilton County. Right? And you're, you and your family, you live by the river, um, what we now call the Coosa River. And so you've got a fresh supply of clean water. And so your family is flourishing and your settlement is flourishing and you begin to make some, ex- some expeditions out away from the river. And after you get many, many miles from the river, you find another settlement of people. But their society is not flourishing. They are not healthy. Many of them have died of thirst. They don't have the nourishment they need because what they're doing is they're collecting rainwater. And so only, their thirst is only quenched just whenever it rains. And so during seasons of drought, they die, right? Um, and it may not even be all that clean. And so you have two options. You can make the miles-long trek back to the river to get gallons of water to bring them daily. Or you can do what humans have done for millennia. You can dig a well. Right? You, can, you can dig down and find the spring that will always supply water. And so what Jesus likens himself to is he says, listen, when you drink of me, it's not like you've got to keep going back to the river slugging water. I'll create in you a spring so that you, so that you never have to worry about being thirsty again. But there's even more. There's even more to it. In Ezekiel 47... Ezekiel was a, is a prophet in the Old Testament. And when Ezekiel is prophesying, um, God's people have been carried away into captivity in Babylon. Right? So Jerusalem has been, for the most part, destroyed. God's people are in captivity. And Ezekiel even sees, receives a vision from God where God, God's chariot comes over to the temple and God's presence leaves the temple. Right? So that's a sad day. It's a, it's a bad day when God moves out of the temple. But then later on in Ezekiel, towards the end of his prophecy, towards the end of his book, Ezekiel gets another vision in chapter 47. Ezekiel gets his vision of a new temple, a huge temple, much bigger than the previous one. And this angel is taking him around and showing him all the measurements and showing him what God is going to do. And then when he comes back around to the east, to the door of the temple, there's water flowing out of it. That's really bizarre. Water never flowed out of the old temple. And there's water trickling down the threshold. And it's going down the steps. And the angel takes Ezekiel along. 
down this water flow. And as they move out of the city, it's up to your knees. And they go a little bit further, and then it's up to his shoulders. And then they go far enough that he can't, ever, he can't even stand in it anymore. Now you can only swim it, and it's a river so great that it can't be crossed. And this is a promise of what God is going to do. And, and the angel picks Ezekiel up, he takes him out of the water, and he sets him on the bank. And as far as you can see, wherever the river flows, life. Right? When, when water cuts a path through the desert, what comes up? Life. Trees. And the river is full of fish. The, the messenger tells Ezekiel, fish of every sort from all over the world. The nations are in the river. And fishermen come from all over to gather fish. What does Jesus tell his disciples? I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is hearkening back to Ezekiel. Jesus has already said that he is the new temple, that he replaces the temple. And the New Testament writers will pick it up. Christians are the temple built on Jesus. And so if we put all of that together, I think what Jesus is showing us, right, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is saying that when we believe and are built into the temple, that the good, satisfying water of Jesus flows out of him through us and into the world, and it gives life. So not only do you receive life, from Jesus, but you then become a life giver. You become life for the whole world because the nations are found in the river. And what do we see in Revelation? A river coming out of the temple and the tree of life that was blocked by our, by our sin in Adam and Eve is opened back up to us again. And so Jesus is talking about Ezekiel and he's promising what these people have been looking for all along, God's Holy Spirit to come and bring life and satisfaction and refreshment. So not only are you refreshed and satisfied forever, but that source of refreshment springs out of you in rivers to bring life to the world. That's Jesus's, That's how Jesus is the water. That's Jesus' good word. Sadly, Jesus' words are both insulting and compelling. Look in verse 40. You see how divided people are over Jesus. For many, Jesus is a lunatic, someone who has to be stopped. And for some, Jesus is worth listening to. Some of the people say, this is the prophet. This is the one that Moses talked about. And they're, they're close, but they're not quite there because he's more than the prophet. And then some say, this is the Messiah. Some people get it. And then others are still limited by their physical, literal understanding. Well, I thought the Messiah was supposed... To, who says the Messiah is supposed to come from Galilee? That's not where the Messiah comes from. This, is, this can't be the Messiah. And yet, if you remember, chapter 6 ends on a really uh, sort of a depressing note. 
right? Chapter 6 ends with Jesus looking at his inner ring of disciples and saying, yet even one of you is the devil. The devil, at the, at the end of chapter 6, the devil has infiltrated Jesus' inner circle. And the only silver lining on that dark cloud is the fact that Jesus knows about it and implies that it's, it's part of the plan too. But the devil isn't the only one infiltrating the enemy. Because what do we see at the end of chapter 7? Nicodemus, one of their own, one of the Pharisees, is now beginning to speak up for Jesus. And so it would seem that all is not lost. So let's see. You have division in the crowds. You have the, uh, the, the leaders wanting to arrest them, yet no one arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Look at the hope that comes at the end of chapter 7. The officers come to the chief priest, and, and the chief priests are livid. The Pharisees are livid. Why didn't you bring him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this man. So they come to Jesus. They're in front of Jesus. They're ready to slap the handcuffs on Jesus. But they hear what he's saying, and they're dumbfounded, and they can't, they can't do it. No one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard words like this. Which, of course, infuriates them. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? We're examples worth following. We're in charge here. Do any of us believe in him? And then almost ironically, one of them speaks up. Well, yeah. Maybe one of us does. Nicodemus speaks up. With, with venom, the Pharisees, this crowd that doesn't know the law. So, so listen to the irony in what they're saying. None of us believes in him. It's just, this, it's just this rabble. It's just these common people. They don't understand the law. And then one of their own stands up and says, Doesn't our law say that we don't condemn a man before we listen to him and see what he does? Ironically, one of their own turns the law that they hold so dearly that they think they know, that they want to use for their own benefit. One of their own stands up and says, hey, well, doesn't the law say we need to listen to him first? That we need to give him a hearing before we judge him, before we condemn him? And notice how they respond. It's what's, it's what, uh, it's what's called in debate circles as an ad hominem Attack, ad hominem, against the man. Being unable to respond to Nicodemus's question, they just decide to insult Nicodemus. Now, surely you've never done that in an argument with somebody when you realized you couldn't win, so you just decided to insult them instead. I know you've never stooped to that level, but that's where the Pharisees were. Are you from Galilee too? Are you one of, are you one of them? One of those mixed half-breeds from the north where they don't obey the law, right? Unable to respond with the law, they simply resort to attacking Nicodemus. And so 
Jesus' words are insulting to some and compelling to others. And the point, the leaders aren't really the ones who can uphold the law. If they were, Jesus' appeals to it and Nicodemus' appeals to it would have won a hearing. But they're not really interested in the law. They say they are, but you can tell that they don't care. Instead, they're interested in despising and discrediting Jesus. And so here's what we can learn from this. Jesus will cause division among people until this world draws to a close. Jesus is a controversial figure. Some will hear him and not really listen. These are the people in this story who say, this is the prophet. They hear some of what he says and appreciate some of what he says. This would be the modern day, uh, this would be the person today who says that Jesus belongs alongside all of the other religious figures in history. A good teacher, a good man, somebody who advocated a certain way of life. But that's only hearing just a part of what Jesus says. Jesus didn't simply advocate a good way of life. He actually said, I am God, and you cannot have life apart from me. Now, that's a whole lot more than a prophet. That's a Messiah. But some don't hear that. Some will hear him and hate him because, and that's who the Pharisees are. Their standing is threatened by Jesus. Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know the law because you don't know the lawgiver. You think you know the law, but you don't. And when Jesus does that, he threatens their standing. And rather than repent, they hate him. Rather than believe, they're hardened. Is that you? Do you hear the words of Jesus and are you challenged? Are you thirsty and you didn't even know it? You refuse, you refuse to acknowledge your thirst and come get the water. Because you're convinced the water will kill you. And then finally, some hear him and believe. And these are the people who say, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is, he is the water that satisfies. He is the one we have been waiting on. Jesus will cause division until this world draws to a close. The question you have to answer is, which side of the division are you on? What will you do with Jesus? Let me close with this question. Are you thirsty? Is your soul thirsty? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I want you to hear Jesus' invitation. If anyone, if anyone is thirsty, that's the condition. You want to know what you have to have to come to Jesus? Thirst. You have to know your need. If anyone is thirsty, Come, come to Jesus and be satisfied.
The only thing Jesus requires is that you feel your need of Him. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is simply that. That if we do not know how thirsty we are, that we would run to you and drink deeply of you. Lord, that for those of us who know you, that you would give us a renewed sense of the spirit that dwells within us, providing life-giving, ever-satisfying rivers of water. And that out of, out of us flows the water of Jesus because we have the Spirit of Jesus living within us. Oh Lord, I pray that we would, that we would know what it means to believe. Not simply to know things about you, to actually trust you, to take you in, and to have life forevermore. We believe, help our unbelief, in Jesus' name.